0: You, Isabel. Thank you, Simon, for reading. Um, Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris. I'm the assistant minister, and uh, let's pray as we look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in a way that we can understand, in a Word that we can read and have passed down, and ultimately in a person we can meet and get to know. We pray you would help us understand what your word is saying to us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, I'm sure that many of you uh, will be familiar with this. We're not about to watch a movie, even though that's exactly where your mind goes when you see that. That is, of course, the famous MGM studio lion, Leo, as he was dubbed, the lion. I love that as it starts a movie, it kind of speaks to the grandeur of what you're about to experience. The great king of beasts there, you hear the deep roar that they managed to capture. But of course, if you're anything like me, maybe you wonder, well, how did they capture that footage? We don't. They didn't have CG back when they first put together that famous bit of footage. And maybe some of you, like me, have seen this photo. This is the photo of the MGM lion being filmed, it's incredible, isn't it? You can see there's the lion right there, a microphone in front of him, and there's the sound guy, and there's the cinematographer, all within a couple of meters. I mean, how does that happen? This is a lion. The king of beasts. Well, it happens because the lion is trained, from young probably. That lion is domesticated, isn't it? And what's the, the thing about a lion when we see it like that, Leo the lion, that is still a lion, but it's not a lion in all its majesty. And the picture here, that to me is a picture of what Christmas Particularly as a formalized tradition that we have become so accustomed to, that is what it tends to do to Jesus. It domesticates him. Yes, he's the promised king. Yes, ruler of all, savior of the world, as we've seen these past few weeks. But also, baby in a manger. Mercy mild. Human being just like us. So relatable. And so we tip our hat and we say, yes, he's still God. We get that. But it's not in all his majesty. And it's interesting what that does to how we think of Jesus. And so we can be as at ease around Christmas Jesus as those MGM employees are around Leo the Lion. It's exactly what our culture does. Jesus is not someone our culture embraces except still at Christmas. He's very tolerable at Christmas when he's a baby in a manger. But we domesticate Jesus at our peril. We domesticate Jesus at our peril. And as we've been seeing this series, we've been looking at the Old Testament anticipation of Jesus. We have been reminded that Jesus coming into the world is not some random happenstance occurrence, something that God had planned he prepared the world for from the very beginning by choosing a people and saying a king is going to come through this human line and that will bless the whole world. It's part of his unfolding work of revelation and of salvation. But our readings this morning that Simon and Isabel brought to us, Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 1, they are not traditional Christmas readings. Neither of them end up at the nativity the birth narratives of Jesus. But as our previous readings have also suggested to us, the nativity itself is not the end of all things. There's a sense of climax when we get to it, but then it goes on from there. It's the beginning of something else. And it's about something bigger, moving towards an even greater climax. And Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 1 are well and truly about that something bigger, are well and truly about that greater climax. It's about who Jesus really is, now, into the future, and forever. It's about the Jesus that each one of us will encounter. And it's about the difference that that Jesus makes to all of us in this room, to everyone in this world, and to the world as we know it. The world that we celebrate and enjoy and delight in, and the world that we despair over at times. So let's have a look. A closer look but as we do it we need to remember a couple of things first of all we're looking at what's known as apocalyptic literature it's a bit different to even the other prophetic literature that we've been looking at over the past few weeks from 2 Samuel and from Isaiah apocalyptic literature is particularly the second half of the book of Daniel and Revelation there are other little parts in the Bible that kind of fall into this category but these are the two main ones and the term apocalyptic. It comes from a Greek word that simply means revelation. It's where we get the name of the book, Revelation. It's the apocalypse of John. And apocalyptic, it's an interesting genre of literature that God has harnessed in his word. It's all about a a pulling back of the curtain. And so it's largely about revealing a big picture of God and his work. And it does this using images and numbers and things like that to convey its meaning and these images they speak truly and accurately but crucially not precisely truly and accurately but not precisely and so it's wrong to press apocalyptic literature and the images that we find they're too hard for details and so we just need to have that in our minds as we come to Daniel 7 as we come to Revelation 1. So let's turn our minds to Daniel 7 and see what Daniel sees. Daniel, if some of you know, he was an exile in Babylon after the kingdom of Israel and Judah have been obliterated by the uh, Syrians initially and then the Babylonians. Daniel spent most of his life in Babylon, carted off as a young man. He grew up there. This is the 6th century BC, so 500s. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Daniel, the first half, it's really just a, a, an historical narrative. It tells the story of Daniel, and in particular, three of his friends, and their courage and their faith before these pagan kings. But the second half of the book, it reports Daniel's prophetic visions of the future. And so, as you move from Daniel chapter 6 into Daniel chapter 7, you move from this relatively straightforward narrative into these visions. These often enigmatic visions with these images and these other things as a part of them. And it begins here at the beginning of chapter 7 with this vision of four beasts coming one after another out of a churning sea. And Daniel sees them and they're terrifying and they're horrific. They're all granted authority and power. And how do they use that authority and power? To consume and to destroy They're they're hybrid creatures, aren't they? Unlike anything that you can actually associate with. And the bit bit after the, uh, the passage that Simon read explains to Daniel what these beasts are. They're representatives of human power and rule. They're expressions of human kingdoms and how it's exercised. The fourth beast is more terrifying and more powerful and more boastful than the rest covered in horns and in apocalyptic literature horns represents power one of the horns as small as it is speaks boastfully daniel is terrified by this vision and yet terrifyingly impressive as these beasts are daniel learns very quickly that they are not the real power they're not the ultimate power because in verse 9 he encounters the ancient of days The Ancient of Days is unmistakably God, Yahweh. You see there that he's powerful and all-consuming. He's on a throne. It's described with terms like fire. He's wise and holy. Everything is white. His hair is white. His clothes are white. And Daniel sees God specifically in his role as judge of all things. There's a court that's convened. Books are opened. And so, the arrogant horn of the fourth beast, we see it still boasts in the presence of this ancient of days, but not for long. It's ended. The beast is killed. The other beasts then, we're told, have their authority removed. And so after the fall and rise and fall of these beast-like empires, then Daniel sees someone else, a third figure. This one approaches the ancient of days. One like a son of man, verse 13. That phrase, a son of man, up to this point in the Bible, it pretty much just means regular human person. So Psalm 8, David saying, Who is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Who is a human being that you care for him, God? But this is one like a son of man. A human, but not, or rather, A human, but not merely. How not? Well, we see him coming on the clouds, coming with the clouds of heaven. That is something reserved for God alone. Only God comes with the clouds of heaven. There's something divine about this character, and he's granted authority to rule, but not as the beast did, destructively, arrogantly, temporarily. No, no, gloriously. He's given an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. Sovereignty over all peoples for all time. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it, from the last few weeks. And the central message of this chapter is clear. There is a conflict between two realms, human evil and divine judgment. And there is a certain and clear conclusion to that conflict. God is in control. He will defeat these seemingly unconquerable powers that in particular oppress his people. Can you imagine Daniel who has spent his whole life under the oppressive reign of the Babylonians who have exiled him and the rest of his people from their homeland? How that would have heard, sounded to him. And God will do this through this one like a son of man. And yet by the time you get to the end of chapter 7, questions remain and they're not answered for Daniel. They're not answered for God's people as they look back on Daniel's vision for many years. Who exactly will this figure be? When will he come up and take come and take up this rule? And that's where we go to Revelation one. And we see that another man of God, the Apostle John, a former disciple of Jesus, so the author of John's Gospel that we spent time in earlier this year. Like Daniel, he is in exile not in a foreign country of Babylon, on an island, the Greek island of Patmos. He's exiled by the Roman Empire for his faith in Jesus, because this is the end of the first century. And by the end of the first century, the church has grown, but so has the Roman Empire's hostility towards the church. And John, as a church leader, has found himself imprisoned on this island. And so he writes this vision, having received it under significant oppression, from a foreign power. It's not unlike Daniel's experience. He gets this vision in captivity. And like Daniel, there's a, a pulling back of the curtain that he's privileged to see. And it's a big picture of God and his work that he sees. After, the, after words from the Lord God, the Almighty, in verse 8, John sees, standing in the midst of seven lampstands, a human figure how does he describe him? One like the Son of Man. Just like Daniel. Although there's a difference, isn't there? I've kind of highlighted it for you there. In Daniel, it's one like a Son of Man. This general idea of a human who's human but not just a human. And then here, it's focused. There's more clarity. He's one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man is, is, is someone and it means something even more specific. And in communicating who this Son of Man is, John provides a portrait for us, doesn't he? And this is a revelation from God, from Jesus, as he, we're told in the very first verse of Revelation chapter 1. It's like a self-portrait that John is getting, that he's communicating to us. But it's a less a self-portrait by Rembrandt, So this is a self-portrait that the artist Rembrandt painted. If you want to know what Rembrandt looked like, look at that self-portrait. That's exactly what Rembrandt looked like. But this is less that sort of self-portrait and more a self-portrait by Picasso. It tells you about the person, not what they look like. And if you know anything about the artist Picasso, by the end of his life in particular, he was a troubled man. And you can get that from his self-portrait. And so the physical appearance and clothing that John describes tells us about this figure, not what he looks like. And so what do we see? Verse 13, we see that he's wearing the full-length robe and sash as a king does. Verse 14, he has the white hair, just like the ancient of days. Wisdom, holiness. He has the fiery bronze feet of a conqueror and the authoritative voice. Verse 15. This figure is also the one who a bit earlier than this, John has referred to, the one who has set us free from our sins by his blood, who was pierced, who has come with the clouds. Verse 7. And then this figure speaks. Verses 17 and 18. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am. Three times there, I am. That is God's revealed name for himself. In Exodus, that he revealed to Moses, I am. What does he say I am is? He is the first and the last. The first and the last. Go back to verse 8. The Lord God, the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This person says, I am that same. I am the same as that. Sovereignty over all history, over everything. What does he hold? He holds the keys to death and Hades. He is the judge. Just like the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. And so what Daniel's vision hints at, John's vision confirms, the one like the Son of Man is nothing less than a divine figure. In fact, is nothing less than the divine figure. The Ancient of Days. God himself. This is Jesus. That's whom John is seeing. This is Jesus. But not Jesus as he was when he first came to earth. Jesus, as John knew when he walked the earth, clothed in weakness. Jesus, as he truly is, clothed in glory and power. But how does John know this? Well, because he walked with Jesus. He knows that this is Jesus, because Jesus claimed the title Son of Man for himself. And throughout all four of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 69 times, In the Gospel of John, 13 times, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. He says, remember that one like a Son of Man in Daniel that you all hoped for, but didn't understand what that would look like for him to come and to be given authority and to exercise that authority? That's me. I'm going to show you what it looks like to exercise that authority. And perhaps most famously, what is Jesus' most famous self-description of himself as the Son of Man? From Mark Ten forty-five. what did the son of man come to do he came to rule of course but Jesus says before that in fact to define his rule the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and so this son of man that John sees Jesus he holds the keys To death and Hades, not only because he is God, but because of his own victory over death. Because of his own victory over the consequences of sin. And so though he was dead, what does he say to John? Behold, I am alive, now and forever. There is no future battle to be fought. The victory already belongs to Jesus. What difference does that make to our past, to our future, to our present? What difference does that make to us here, this Christmas? Well, it's worth asking yourself, does Christmas and the Jesus that you hold in your mind as a result of our Christmas traditions, does that make it difficult for you to move beyond a domesticated Jesus, an overly familiar, unthreatening Jesus? Does Christmas Jesus cause you to dismiss him too easily. Certainly if you're someone here whose trust isn't in Jesus, maybe that might be the case for you. But even people who follow Jesus can get caught up in thinking, well, just a man like me. Yeah, God, but he's a man like me. That's both true and completely misses the point. The visions of Daniel 7 and Revelation 1, they are the enigmatic They're a bit hard to understand in some respects. There is much mystery there, but there is also much clarity. The Ancient of Days, the Lord God Almighty, is in ultimate and absolute control over the past, over the future, over our present. And he's going to exercise that control. In fact, he already has begun exercising it through the everlasting dominion of the Son of Man, Jesus. The man who is God. So the question for us is, are you ready for this Son of Man? Are you ready for him, for Jesus' return? Or do you not take him seriously? Because remember, a key part of each of those visions is that Jesus will return. He needs to be given that everlasting dominion. That will happen at a point in human history. And that will be the end of human history as we know it. And when he does return it will not be as the meek child resting in a manger but as the majestic monarch ruling the cosmos and today's powers that be whether they be political or social they will tomorrow face him who holds the keys to death and Hades and we will too and at that point all sin and injustice Including that which we commit, it will be brought to an end in the final judgment of the Son of Man. And for those whose trust is in Jesus and what he has done, the ransom that he has paid on our behalf, that is a great day. And it means in the present great hope. It means that we can we can mourn death, but not be not be destroyed by it. It means we can lament injustice and just out of control human sinfulness but not be overwhelmed and overcome by it because we know how it ends. It's a great comfort but it's also a challenge. I was struck last week as Ricky was praying for us on our behalf. She acknowledged that in the preoccupation of our daily lives or perhaps of our Christmas prep this year, What do we do? She said, we forget the urgency of Jesus' return. All this might seem a bit far off for you. It is urgent because we have not been told when Jesus will return. Any withholding is a mercy that more would come to put faith in him. And so this whole series we've been saying, the wait is over. And it's true. For the initial realisation of Old Testament hope, as we put in our sign, the spiritual blessings that come with it, waiting to be right with God, Christmas means the wait is over. You don't have to wait anymore. Forgiveness of sins, spiritual communion with your Creator, that wait is over. But for the final realisation of Old Testament hope, the all-powerful and universal and everlasting rule of Jesus, Well, that weight continues. And so this Christmas, when you consider the baby lying in a manger 2,000 years ago, when you consider that in images and in carols and in Bible passages, consider also the man who is God, the Son of Man, coming with the clouds, clothed in all his majesty. In the famous children's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. As the children enter Narnia, covered in snow, they encounter the beaver family who tell them that this is not actually how this world always was. There's actually a king who's going to make everything right, who's the true king of Narnia. And as they ask more questions about this king, they're told this king is Aslan, the lion. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, replies Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslam without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, one of the other girls, Lucy asks. Safe, responds Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Cause course he isn't safe, but he's good. I tell you don't you hear what Daniel 7 and Revelation 1 are telling you about the son of man about Jesus who said anything about safe but he's good I tell you ignore Jesus and he will be to you nothing but the powerful ruler judging those whose sin and rebellion is not covered by his blood they will jesus will not just be the all-powerful ruler but your savior your sin is covered and he'll become your friend your brother because he isn't safe he's god he's good and he's the king let's pray thank you lord jesus one of us in order order to show us who you really are, in order to save us. Help us to celebrate your human birth. Help us to celebrate your death and resurrection this Christmas, but help us also fix our eyes on your certain return in glory. And every conversation that we feel, I don't want to put someone out by saying, where is your trust in Jesus? May that vision spur us on. And thank you that as we live in a world racked by sin, human and natural, the consequences help us to remember that you will right all things. You, the son of man, may that give us hope now.